Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would write a short review on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. For all episodes, you can go to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Will McClelland, co-founder and partner of Elizabeth Street Ventures, an early-stage investment firm focused on the digital consumer and next-generation brands that improve daily life. He is also the co-founder of Bambike, a family business that builds bamboo bicycles and operates ecotourism activities in the Philippines. Prior to Elizabeth Street, Will was a partner at Grace Beauty Capital, a family office venture portfolio focused on early stage consumer businesses. During his time as portfolio manager at Grace Beauty, he invested in Third Love, Harry's, Rothy's, Birchbox, and many, many more. I had such a wonderful time chatting to Will, and so without further ado, here he is. so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Mike, it's great to it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. So what attracted you to invest in startups and travel from investment banking and hedge funds uh, to then co-founding a, a bamboo bicycle company and, and just invest in startups in general? No, absolutely. Yeah. So I started in, you know, with a more traditional path in finance as a as an investment banker working for Lehman Brothers in their Menlo Park office in Silicon Valley, focusing on tech companies. And this was back during the tech bust, I suppose, you know, from 2002 to 2004. Um, but I had I'd gone to Yale and I you know, really kind of read a lot of David Swenson's books um, and was interested in what the Yale Endowment was doing in alternative asset classes. So I actually had an opportunity after a couple of years to go work for a fund of hedge funds in San Francisco called Ironwood Capital Management. And when I started in Ironwood, we had about, you know, just over 250 million in assets under management in around the 2004 timeframe. And, you know, over the eight years that I was there, we, you know, the industry grew, but then Ironwood grew to over three and a half billion dollars. And so I had started there as an analyst, but was eventually promoted to managing director of research, kind of overseeing the entire research function, and was also the youngest member of Ironwood's Investment and Risk Committee. So, you know, for the first 10 years of my career, I was very, you know, very focused on kind of markets, but also trained as a, you know, as a very traditional investor. Um, but we were looking at asset classes um, in the hedge fund space that were kind of non-traditional. So we were looking at things like distressed debt, merger arbitrage, convertible bond arbitrage, and strategies like that. So for me, I was always interested in 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 these practitioners and these kind of investors that were doing things that were, you know, very specific in nature and had very kind of, you know, distinct return characteristics. And then from my seat as a portfolio manager, putting that all together into something that made a lot of coherent sense from an investment standpoint. Um, and it just... It was completely out of the blue that I, you know, so I have a younger brother who for a time was living in our laundry room in San Francisco. And then he moved to the Philippines um, where, you know, we're dual citizens and my brother and I are both half Filipino and have a lot of family there. So he'd moved over 
to Manila and then came back at a certain point and pitched me an idea that he had had, which was to start a bamboo bicycle company. I thought it was very interesting and, you know, suited him very well. But then he kind of explained to me that bamboo had higher tensile strength than steel and that there was a guy making bamboo bicycles and he had gone and learned how to do it and that it was an you know, abundant natural resource in the Philippines. It's actually a grass. It's not a wood. It grows extremely quickly. So it's you know, good for the environment and you know, biking itself is good for the environment. So he kind of pitched me on his idea. And, you know, of course, your younger brother, you want to, you want to support him. And so I said, I said, look, this sounds great, but why don't you write me a business plan? And so we did. And then, you know, he presented it to me and we went, we worked through it and I wrote him his first check, um, which I was, you know, fortunately in a position to be able to do. And, you know, watching my brother go back with, with that, you know, small amount of funding to the Philippines and turn it into the kind of booming social enterprise it is today. Um, you know, we run, we, we make bamboo bicycles, we sell them to high-end resorts, we sell them, you know, to consumers, but then we also run a bike tour business now in Manila, which is the number one rated outdoor activity on TripAdvisor, actually. And one of our bikes was given by the Philippine ambassador to the U.S., the President Obama, as a, as a state gift. So kind of watching this all happen and have it, you know, kind of retrospectively thinking that was an idea that someone had and then it was a business plan and then there was a check and then now it's become all these other things you know i've been studying these asset classes like i mentioned convertible bond arbitrage litigation claim investing i mean very kind of obscure kind of hedge fundy uh off the run types of strategies i thought to myself well is there is there a an investment strategy here in funding, you know, obviously venture capital was something I was very aware of, especially living in the Bay Area and having friends in the industry. But I thought to myself, wow, con you know, funding consumer businesses, you're not only close to the entrepreneur, but you're close to the product and you're, you're close to the end user. And so that was the first time I thought to myself that you know, consumer venture as an asset class could even exist um, as a viable way to make uh, attractive investment returns. Does it help when you are evaluating companies that are you are the actual target audience? I mean, I think it, it, it can be a good thing. It can also be, um, you know, I, but I also think there's a skill in being able to abstract myself as an investor to look at many different classes of companies and many categories and at many different price points and tiers. So for example, if I was myself, just a luxury consumer, not saying that I am, but, you know, say, for example, I was in that tier of, you know, consumer, you know, and I only invested in things that appealed to me as a consumer, then I wouldn't invest in things that could resonate with, with the mass market. And therefore, I would be missing things and opportunities that could scale very broadly. So I think, yes, I definitely invest in companies with brands that speak to my own demographic and resonate with me and and certain brands in the portfolio where I very much, you know, use the products, represent the brands, wear the merchandise, et cetera. But I think really good consumer investors can function at different tiers and of price points, uh, different categories kind of more broadly. And then also, you know, uh, I'm certainly not a consumer of, you know, women's products, but 
of the companies I've invested with that have been the most successful. I mean, most of those have been products that you're kind of cater to millennial females. So I'd say the answer is for some brands, yes, they're suited to me as a consumer, but I think to be a very good consumer investor, you have to kind of abstract your, your own tastes from your ability to analyze something as an investment. No, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, so how did Elizabeth street come together? Sure. So, you know, like I, I mentioned, I had the experience co-founding Van Bike with my brother, but I was still working in the hedge fund world at the time. And, and I, you know, after eight years working in, in the fund of funds, I decided that I was wanting to do something different. And through some, you know, a lot of networking, some time off where I traveled a little bit and, you know, thought about what I wanted to do, I really got interested to, to see if I could pursue this or, you know, this opportunity in venture, knowing that, you know, I wasn't going to walk into a venture firm and just get hired. I kind of had to find my way to break into the industry. And I, I, I felt that, you know, working with a family office was probably a good way to try to do that. And just so happened that through a friend of mine that was working at a venture capital firm in the Bay Area, I was introduced to his brother-in-law, who's here in New York. And he and his father run a beauty distribution company called Grace Beauty. And they were very interested in investing some of the family's capital into startups and had had actually already invested in companies like Peloton, Warby Parker, and Birchbox. Um, and, you know, didn't, but, you know, we're looking for someone with an investment background like I had to come and continue to build out the family's venture portfolio. So, in 2014, I went to go work for um, my old partners, who, you know, father and son. We created our, you know, investment brand for the family office called the Grace Beauty Capital. Um, and then I kind of worked to kind of professionalize a lot of what we were doing from you know, kind of the back end, everything you need to do to, to go source deals, build a network, you know, I built and kind of managed a research group before. So a lot of my approach was taking on things that I had learned from, from that experience um, and applying it to being in New York, meeting with as many entrepreneurs, as many investors as possible, turned on, you know, started sourcing deals, working with the father and son who were my partners and, and sometimes co-investing with them, but, you know, built up a track record of, you know, over four years investing in companies um, that were kind of, you know, some DTC companies, um, CPG companies, um, you know, saw a lot in the beauty space, obviously, because we we're, you know, I was part of a beauty, op you know, beauty distribution company and operating business. And we did some, we did some, some investments in retail tech. And, you know, some of those investments, like we were early investors in, in Third Love when they were doing less than a million of revenue. And we were early investors in Rossi's, which again was also doing less than a million of revenue back when we made those initial investments in both Third Love and Rossi's. And this is this is public information. Third Love did 180 million in sales last year, and Rossi's did 140 million in sales. And so, you know, those were two of kind of the uh, the examples I, I I speak to when when investors are kind of unsure as to what the investment opportunity is, what's the investment case in consumer. A lot of, you know, some more traditional investors think it's a very niche place to be in. Um, but, you know, those have generated incredible um, long-term returns and those companies continue to grow. So I had had an opportunity to work with the family office, you know, for four years, I built a track record. 
Um, you know, so invested in about 20 companies with my partners at Grace Beauty Capital. You know, built a nice, I think, narrative for for Grace Beauty. Um, really nice network for myself in New York as, you know, as one of the, you know, as someone that was interested in consumer. And again, you know, when I started, consumer venture wasn't really part of the lexicon. I mean, we had tech VCs that were coming into certain consumer companies. There was, you know, obviously a lot of growth equity firms that focus on consumer and some angels. But, you know, when I would meet an entrepreneur and at this point, you know, I was, I was an employee of the beauty company and I, you know, we sold to, to channels like Walmart and Target and Walgreens. And I would go to Bentonville and go to Walmart supplier day. So I really learned kind of the language of consumer from the inside. Um, and when my partner would, and I would speak to entrepreneurs, it became very clear to them very early on in the meeting that even just the way we spoke, the types of questions we asked, how we thought about their businesses and, you know, consumer brands was different than, you know, their meetings and experiences that they would have with more traditional kind of tech focused VCs. So that just told me that, you know, my initial thesis that, you know, consumer venture could actually be a distinct asset class and I could actually form a particular framework that fits early stage consumer investing that's actually different from the traditional tech VC model. And, you know, on top of that, the, the narrative and, the, you know, speaking the language of the consumer industry, it was just, it, it, it resonated with entrepreneurs. And then I knew it was something that probably could be an opportunity for something bigger and, and beyond the family office that I was, I was working for. What should entrepreneurs kind of pay attention to uh, when it comes to if they're raising money from family office as a and and having a family office as a partner as opposed to maybe a traditional venture capital firm as a partner? Sure. Yeah. No. I think like every family office is is different, and they say you know if you've if you've met one family office, you've you've met one family office. They're all they're all completely different. So I can speak to um, you know Grace Beauty Capital. Like we were very we, we were very knowledgeable about, you know, CBG retail distribution. Um, and then we could kind of take that framework and help apply it to these next generation of brands that were starting in digital channels, but we're eventually trying to figure out how to do business with a, with a target or like, you know, like Warby Parker open their own stores, et cetera. So um, I can't generalize about family offices, but I did find patterns in, in the tech VCs were actually very different than the growth equity, more private equity funds in that, um, you know, the loss rate expert uh, expectations for a tech VC are completely different than for a growth equity fund. And, you know, you'd seen enough examples of some more tech focused funds funding consumer businesses and in some ways, you know, overfunding them and, and uh, you know, not having a great outcome from a return standpoint, that um, you know, it became clear to me that there was just a different ethos when a company, because you know, at the early stage, we were kind of the companies that we would meet, you know, the entrepreneurs that we would meet were in consumer, kind of straddled the lines between VC and and P, and and some would grow up and go west and and get funded by by those types of you know by those types of investors, um, and. And others would, you know, get funded by, you know, more um, growth equity type funds. And the growth expectations that were put on those founders and those companies were completely different based on the path that they had, 
they had chosen, right? So I think the biggest generalization that I saw in my seat at the family office was that, A, because we were a strategic family office, we, you know, we were one, non-competitive to either the, you know, the VC or the private equity fund because we were just kind of, we were additive and non-competitive and we weren't, you know, uh, we had smaller checks and, you know, we were just kind of good, you know, good members of a syndicate that brought strategic value. But what I noticed by, you know, having seats in, in both kinds of businesses was that, was that, yeah, I mean, consumer companies, you know, consumer VC actually is much more akin to like an early growth equity portfolio in many cases than it is in similarity, in similarity to a more traditional tech VC um, strategy where, you know, a growth equity portfolio is not going to want to have any any losses of any of their portfolio companies. And so they have, you know, more moderated return expectations called three to five X, but, you know, VCs, a lot of times they're playing for the home run. So, you know, they're pushing for growth and they're they're funding for growth, but they're also willing to accept, you know, some loss rate um, of their portfolio companies. And so I think one of the interesting things was kind of watching that and, and kind of trying to educate founders about that in a way to kind of coach them in a way where they could steer their paths to whichever route that they felt um, was most appropriate for their business. and. And yeah, I got a, just a very interesting, uh, you know, over four years at the family office, I had a very interesting seat because, you know, some investors would go one way and some companies would go one way and others would go the other way. And, uh, you know, I was able to kind of form my framework based on my experience. Watching that, I really appreciate that response. Uh, I never really thought about consumer uh, consumer businesses and consumer brands uh, in terms of uh, the venture capital model as opposed to the growth equity model, which kind of leads into my next question. Because I, I read an article in DigiDay, and, and according to CB Insights, uh, consumer D 2 C brands have raised more than three billion since 2012, and half the money was raised in 2018. However, we really haven't seen a lot of, of exits for, for DC brands in terms of uh, there hasn't been many IPOs uh, and only a few acquisitions. So h- how does this influence your approach to DC brands? Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's you know, important to point out that at Elizabeth Street, you know, DTC would be one piece of what we're looking at overall. I mean, we're looking at consumer in a way that encompasses everything from fintech to to healthcare and hospitality and entertainment and CPG. But then, you know, obviously DTC has been an area that um, I have invested in a lot. So I would say one, DTC does not make a tech company necessarily. Every company needs to be selling on online. And based on what your product is and what your product category is, that will dictate, you know, what the right mix is, right? Apparel does very well um, DTC. Um, but, you know, food, you know, up until now, like just, just isn't as not, it doesn't do as much volume uh, on, on DTC versus more traditional um, grocery channels. Um, so, but within DTC, to answer your specific question, I would say you don't want to put $100 million into a DTC company to get out hundred million of revenue. That's neither capital efficient nor sustainable, right? And I think some companies experience that and are now examples for for you know this next generation of entrepreneurs who have seen businesses like that um, and the pitfalls with 
you know, funding a DTC business in the same way you would fund an enterprise software business. It's just not a good, it's not a good fit, right? Um, but we had to kind of figure that out early on, especially in 2012, 2013. I mean, there was it was a new model, right? So um, the funding model really hadn't quite been figured out yet, and I think it's evolved. But you know, I'd say you can still get exits. I mean, we were at Grace Beauty Capital investors in Harry's, which had a billion dollar plus outcome in Eloquy, which got acquired by Walmart and in Peloton, which just went public. So you have to really look, you can't lump everything into DTCs as the same. And I think that's where being a specialist consumer investor, when you can have a more nuanced view and opinion on what brands and what product categories um, and what types of businesses are more defensible than others and what, you know, what segments are more crowded and less differentiated. You can kind of pick your spots, but I'd say just, you know, general call you know, talking about DTC. Like, I think we're going to, we're going to find that some DTC businesses grow from a million to the seven to 20 to 50 and plateau or, you know, they plateau at 75 or a hundred, but, you know, there's a plateau in a lot of these businesses. Um, and part of it is because, you know, rising, you know, you know, rising CAC, right? Or um, just, you know, it's not winner take, you're not in a winner take all market if you're in apparel, right? There's many players, there's more competition. So I, I think it, um, I always think about it in terms of the specific product category. Um, and then what you can do is it's not that the DDC model is bad in any way. It's just, I think you have to align as I think for founders, you have to realize, you have to realistically align your growth trajectory and where your brand might plateau in your core set of SKUs um, and, and fund it accordingly. Right. If you, we works not DTC, but you know, if we work was just happy to say we are an office space company and not, a we company with we live and we, you know, we gem and like we school or I forget the name, but, or, you know, like, or if you're a luggage business and you stay a luggage business, that could be, that could be a really good business. But, you know, if you try and boil the ocean and try and be everything to everyone um, and own the market, I think, you know, some of these consumer companies will find out that consumer in many cases is not a winner take all market, like some, some more tech um, categories, which can be winner take all. So what's, what's your average check size at uh, Elizabeth street? Sure. Yeah. Elizabeth street's average check size is that it's somewhere between 250 and 2 million. We'll write $500,000, $700,000 checks to companies with, you know, at seed stage or less than a million of revenue. So we can be either a lead investor for a seed round or just a very important investor in a brand's early, you know, early trajectory. Um, but we've also done investments bigger than that through through a couple SPVs that we've we've managed you know over the last year as well. At that stage, um, or or at the stages, um, you know, I'd imagine when uh, you see pitches, you probably don't have a ton of data to go on. What types of qualities do you look for in a founder? Sure. No, and and I think it's a great question, right? And and a lot of this, you know, I learned for eight years interviewing hedge fund managers. I think you know these interview skills are. Um, one of the most important things that have carried over from my career in finance to um, working in venture capital. And, and I think what I've boiled down for me personally, two things on a qualitative basis about founders is one, insight, and two, magnetism. 
And the insight piece just means that the founder has to have some special insight about his or her product, category, service, market, et cetera, that, that I can buy into. Um, so I don't have to have the insight myself, but the founder needs to really have an insightful take on why they're starting their business or why their particular business can generate enough demand in a market where there seems to be you know, natural acquirers. And I kind of think it through like that. You know, part of that is is understanding, you know, how insightful is it and does that lead to defensibility? Does it lead to differentiation? Is it just super early? Is it in a category that just, ha- you know, people haven't really been innovating in? And every company in our portfolio, I can talk through exactly the insight that got me interested. Uh, about the the founders and and the company. And two, the piece about magnetism, I think, is just a really great way to describe how hard the founder's job is, right? Because as the founder, you not only have to attract customers to your mission, but you have to hire employees to your company, and you have to also be constantly fundraising. So you've got to sell investors. So personal qualities of the founder once they have what it is that is special that they're building, you know, you, you have to be able to pull people into your circle. And the more magnetic the individuals are, you know, the more you as an investor can project out, okay, this will resonate with a broad customer base. This is going to be easier because it's never easy, but easier to raise capital for. Um, and this is the type of place and the type of culture and the type of people that, you know, employees are going to want to come work for. Um, so I'd say those two things, insights and magnetism. I really like that you raised talking about, you know, competitive advantage and, uh, and analysis. I was, I was just curious as to what, what maybe are some uh, perceived competitive advantages uh, that people might think are competitive advantages, but you actually don't believe that they're a, a, moat or a competitive advantage for for a company yeah look it depends i guess it depends on the category that's a good question i'd say look brands it's very hard to just compete on on brands if there isn't some kind of technical component of your product construction or some particular reason that this set of founders or this business uh has some sort of moat around what they're doing you know it can be very easy to copy and compete with. And so I think, you know, founders just founders that are unrealistic about that, I think are, you know, you want to be cautious to invest in because it means they haven't, they don't have a realistic market map of their competitive set, um, which could, could lead to some bad things from an investment standpoint down the road. Uh, you know, but particular attributes, I just think there's certain categories that are super crowded unless you find something very special, you know, it's better to pass. So, you know, I've seen a lot of beauty companies, and you, you want to pass on, you know, nine over nine times out of ten, you're going to want to pass on, uh, you know, the beauty companies. Um, I invested in Supergoop, which has done very well, you know, because SPF, which is what Supergoop does, some protection, is actually a very technical product construction, and it's harder for companies to figure out, and so fewer companies do it. But if you look at like deodorant. And I haven't invested in any deodorant companies, but, you know, natural deodorant, better for you, no aluminum. I mean, you know, Native is a brand that got acquired. Schmidt is a brand that got acquired. But at the end of the day, like, 
is it what's the really is there a high barrier entry to start a new deodorant company and if Unilever and PG have each made an acquisition in that space well then what's differentiated about brand four and five and six in that category and also who's the acquirer right so so I was trying to think through those market dynamics and it, it could be just like some you know some people have first mover advantages, some people have a very technical product moat, or there's something about, uh, you know, there's some barrier to um, capital raising for, you know, for a company that means that it's harder for other competitors to come in. But I, you know, again, I, I, I think about it a lot, but it's, it's, very, it's something that's very kind of category specific. When should a founder or an investor know when the startup has actually found product market fit? I don't really use the words product market fit. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's because you can get product market fit on something that can be a very small niche opportunity, right? So it's less to me about product market fit because, you know, there's a long tail of tastes and, and there's, you know, you know, and I try not invest in these like longer tail types of, I try and look to things that can, can scale to a wider, broader mass, or, you know, I call it mastige, which is that tier between prestige and mass, more aspirational segment, right? And so it can be very big. So I'd say it's very different to say if you have product market fit for, uh, you know, something that has just a very specific audience, um, or if you have product market fit in something that could literally, you know, be worn by, or could be purchased by, you know, the majority of Americans. So, you know, look, I, I, we, uh, early on, we look for, you know, demand signals like revenue growth, social media engagement, you know, kind of look for things that tell you about word of mouth communities being formed around specific brands, um, product reviews. There's a lot more information now for us to, to evaluate. So, I mean, I can read Amazon reviews. I can read product reviews. Um, for companies that have less than a million revenue and get a pretty good sense for what people are saying. And, you know, I can look at the the ingredients in a, in a brand versus the ingredients of a competitive brand that's been around for a longer period of time and know, okay, this is really a healthier for you type of product. So, um, and then, you know, you make, you make your own, you know, we think very thematically, right? So we have these top down kind of thematic themes and, and how we think about different segments of consumer. And, you know, we try and find companies that are kind of building towards those themes. Um, but, you know, product market fit, I'm more concerned about the size of the market, quite frankly, than, you know, fitting into something that's very niche. To quote from you in uh, Crane's New York business, if you want to start a tech business, go to San Francisco. But for more human-centric businesses, New York is more vibrant. Would you mind describing what you see as differences between startup ecosystems between Bay Area and New York? Because I know that you've lived in both areas. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'll, I'll preface this by saying, you know, some of my best friends live in San Francisco and I spent 10 years there and it's dear to my heart. I love it. Um, but, you know, for many reasons, it's, it's, it's a lot smaller. It's less diverse. Diversity of culture, diversity of industry, um, diversity of income, well, today, certainly diversity of income strata, you know, strata um, as compared to New York. And, and I think you just have a more broader set of industries that can kind of, that are adjacent to consumer businesses that can be more useful in terms of, you know, who you're, you're partnering with from a business standpoint, but also who you're hiring and what your talent pool is, right? So New York just has, you know, look, we're the center of of industry, or the center of finance, or the center, you know, healthcare, beauty, fashion, commerce, consumer. It's just the much more diverse 
media. Um, there's many more diverse industries here in New York City than than exist in the Bay Area, and that's just that's just a fact. So if you are building a high tech business and the success of that will depend on the engineering talent uh, and the tech talent that you can get, then you should be in the area where you know the most talent for that exists, which would be the Bay Area. But if you are, like I use this example a lot, like, look, you know, if you're a female founder starting a consumer company, you know, there are cultural differences and there, you know, there, there, there are lifestyle reasons that New York is just a much better city for you and your team, right? It's just a different, uh, I think it just has to do with the diversity of the industries here, which means there's a diverse talent base here. And, and interestingly, there's just a much less developed kind of venture capital funding ecosystem here, which to me makes, you know, Elizabeth Street's opportunity very clear, right? Like we can be a leading, if not the leading consumer early stage investor in lower Manhattan. And if lower Manhattan is kind of our uh, home field advantage, so to speak, and one of the reasons, I mean, Elizabeth Street is is in Alita, it's a beautiful shopping street. You know, Tory Burch's first store is there. You know, up and coming brands are there. You know, we can be that brand and 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 work with enough founders that are attracted to that ecosystem and come here not only for capital from firms like ourselves, but you know, for the other adjacent industries like the branding agencies, the the media companies, the uh, what's going on in food? I mean, it's just there's there's a lot here to pull from because not every business is a pure tech business. I mean, I say human centric because you know a consumer business at the end of the day has to you know, sell to the end consumer customer, which is a uh, you know humans have very you know, have needs and they have, you know, there's things that are culturally important. And so understanding, you know, and being a part of businesses that can be culturally relevant, I think is an opportunity that we have here in New York, which is just a different, it's just a different opportunity set than, you know, perhaps what you would see in the Bay Area. And I think the other, the other market where, you know, that lends itself really well to consumers is, is LA. Now, I, I know we spoke about New York, San Francisco. What's your advice for founders that might live in secondary or tertiary markets? So one, come to New York and raise capital and, and visit us when you're here. <laughs> but two, I would say, look, I mean, I think you can build great authentic brands out of, you know, what, you know, what we could call secondary markets. I mean, we've got, we just invested in uh, the fastest growing hot sauce brand in natural grocery called Yellow Bird Foods which is out of Austin, Texas. And we also invested in a, a DTC outdoor apparel company called Oros, which is based in, in Portland, Oregon. And I think those are two very good examples of, look, like these brands have to authentically connect to their customers. And so Hot Sauce from Austin and a cult brand in Texas, which is you know the, one of the barbecue capitals of the country, is like a very authentic brand, right? Um, you know, if you're making next generation, you know, jackets for the outdoors using next generation technology adapted from NASA, well, you know, being in Portland and with access to the Pacific Northwest is a great place to be because your customers are there, people that, you know, would come work for your company and live that lifestyle, you know, that's where they're going to be. So um, I guess my advice is, look, if you're in 
in if you're not in New York or the Bay Area or in LA, do you know build your business? But you know connect with you know connect with investors in those markets that have resources and networks that you can kind of tap into. So, for example, Yellowbird in Austin and Oros in Portland know that at least through through Elizabeth Street, you know, they're somehow plugged into what's going on in New York and into the other digital brands here into the into the ecosystem here. So you don't necessarily have to be here, but but I also think, you know, there's certain advantages too. It's harder to build an authentic outdoor apparel company if you're not in a city that has immediate kind of access to the out to the outdoors. And, you know, if you're building a organic hot sauce brand, you know, it's really helps to be kind of in one of the barbecue capitals of of the country. So there are certain advantages to being in, in smaller markets, not to mention, obviously, cost of living, access to new talent, you know, where young people are moving. And, you know, Austin is an extremely exciting ecosystem. You know, Portland for outdoor sports, specific, you know, definitely. And then, you know, other other cities for, for different industries, Boston for you know, healthcare and, and high tech too is, uh, I wouldn't even consider Boston a secondary market, but, but yeah, I'd say, you know, the advice to founders would be if you're a consumer founder and when you capital raise and you come to New York, speak to the consumer investors here and they can be helpful by plugging you into their network. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, also as well, uh, for startups, I, mean, I read an article about since San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley are just becoming so expensive. Uh, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult for, for some founders to start companies um, in that area. Uh, so as well as, as well as cost of living in terms of secondary markets. You know, I want to talk briefly about round sizes uh, and how they've increased uh, dramatically over the past few years. Now we're having, you know, huge funds in venture capital. And now we have a different, we have the pre-seed micro funds. How has this influenced you as an investor and think about price in today's climate where it seems like, uh, valuation for startups just just keep getting exponentially big, uh, bigger and bigger. Yeah, no, I'd say it's something we have to pay very close attention to because, you know, as investors in illiquid securities, prices, you know, price and diversification and asset selection are your three main levers to pull from a risk management standpoint. So price is a is a huge one. And, you know, as early investors, I think the benefit that we have is that, you know, prices are generally, they're pretty low um, at the seed stage. I mean, are they pushed up a little bit at the A? Yeah, in my experience over the last four or five years, they they have been. But, you know, we kind of have a, a target range of wanting to invest in companies with enterprise values between 5 million and 40 million. Um, and we want to be able to earn a return of five to 10 X on every investment that we make. So, so look, if that means we don't participate in a B because it, it, we, at the, at the price of the B, we don't think we can make our five to 10 X return. then then we better, you know, build our position in the seat in the A, or if we do the B, we can do that through an SBB or, you know, outside of our fine. But, you know, generally early on the prices for, for, you know, companies with less than a million revenue are going to be more a function of how much equity the company, the investors want to buy and the founders are willing to sell. And that usually falls somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. And so we kind of back into the valuations for that. Um, and in consumer, you know, for, for fast growing companies, you're kind of looking at multiple of sales. And so, you know, you're still looking at things like three to four times um revenue for you know just kind of a rule of thumb but yeah prices prices get pushed up 
Um, and you know, that can, that can be detrimental to companies too. I mean, raising a lot of money at a high value and then not delivering the growth in the next 12 to 24 months to, to justify that value can leave companies in a problematic position for the next fundraise if they're not profitable. So it's, uh, you know, it's something that we have to pay very close attention to. Um, and if something's too expensive for us, well, then it's, you know, it's gotta be a pass. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, in terms of companies raising too much and not delivering, I mean, I feel like I read about WeWork all the time in the past few days. So uh, uh, it's definitely an interesting uh, landscape today. What are some consumer trends that you're most excited about? Yeah, so I'd say one of the trends that we've been active in with a couple of our companies, you know, that maybe traditional tech VCs don't really get interested in about is is this kind of growth of the experiential economy and coupled with the turnover of traditional retail and kind of falling commercial rents right and so you know retailers like barney's forever 21 here in new york dean and deluca they're going out of business and they leave these huge kind of retail footprints kind of in quote, you know, high street locations, right? Um, so in the middle of the greatest city, uh, you know, one of the greatest cities on the planet, you've got, you know, huge kind of vacant spaces. And, you know, we've invested in two companies that have different business, you know, that aren't retail-based models that can actually make use of like very large, like 24, you know, 25,000 to 30,000 square foot spaces. And so I think thematically, that's something that's playing out because of, What's happened, you know, started obviously with digital shopping and e-commerce and how that's affected, you know, physical, re- you know, department store and apparel retailers and the opportunity that those falling commercial rents create for new businesses. And so we're involved in um, a really exciting company called Museum of Ice Cream, which is opening a flagship location in a 24,000 square foot building on Broadway in Soho between Prince and Spring. And for people that are familiar with that block, it's two doors down from Dean and DeLuca, which also just went went under on that, you know, it was kind of an iconic corner there, that Dean and DeLuca space. So, you know, Museum of Ice Cream is, is a ticket-based revenue, is, is a you know, the ticket-based business model. It doesn't have anything to, you know, it doesn't rely on, on retail, you know, retail margins are generally pretty thin, you know, Museum of Ice Cream, Margins are, are extremely high, um, and you just have a new business that can fit into this space. Um, we also have a company that we're bringing to market next year, which is a membership club called High Court, which is you know, about six blocks down on Broadway from Museum of Ice Cream and kind of you know, Broadway just south of Canal Street. And High Court is a 30,000-square-foot membership club, um, and we're leasing the entire space. So uh, that's a membership you know, base model where people will pay, you know, monthly, but commit to an annual um, commitment. And it's priced about the same as what Equinox charges, but it's, but it's more of a Soho house type of type of offering with, you know, fitness elements and uh, health and wellness elements, you know, kind of on five floors. So, um, you know, that's something that we're super excited about. Um, because, you know, one of our companies is taking down a 24,000 square foot building that used to be an H&M. Another one of our companies is building out a 30,000 square foot building. Um, and they're both on Broadway, which is, you know, kind of the center of the beating heart of 
you know, New York City, right? I mean, the, the High Court building was built in 1875, and we feel very privileged to be able to have a business that can inhabit that that historic space. And um, new business, you know, entrepreneurs that have had this insight um, for the particular business, um, but can take advantage of the market opportunity with falling commercial rents. Um, look, those that those types of businesses are setting to Elizabeth Street, but they, you know, they kind of fall between, you know, they're kind of just outside of what, you know, traditional tech VCs are, you know, are typically looking to find. And, you know, they may be more appropriate for, you know, private equity firms, but because these are startups, it's, you know, they're still too early for kind of more traditional private equity funding. So, you know, for us, that gets us super excited. And it's also, very, you know, it's a very New York-based thing because we're starting here. But, um, you know, that trend of falling falling rents and, you know, turnover of, of physical, you know, apparel and department store retail is something that's happening globally. So, so we've got a real opportunity and it's a trend that we're super excited about. No, that's awesome. That's really cool. I still haven't visited the uh, Museum of Ice Cream in LA, but I plan to. What's what's one thing that you would change about venture capital? I wish there were more avenues for liquidity. I wish there were more outcomes, you know, for an exit than just an acquisition by a strategic or or an IPO. And and I, I'm I'm very interested in this long-term stock exchange concept. I'm I'm very interested in, you know, is there are there other paths to liquidity for some of these private businesses that don't necessarily, you know, want to go trade publicly on on the Nasdaq. Um, so I'd say if there's one thing that would you know improve our probability of success and also make it be another avenue for entrepreneurs that are running and building private companies. Um, you know, is there some either long-term stock exchange or is there some other um, avenue for liquidity? I mean, obviously with what happened with, with SoftBank's vision fund, I mean, that was trying something one way and, you know, we'll see if that that's viable um, after the WeWork thing, but, you know, is there, is there another, you know, I would change, because right now, you know, as an early stage investor, you know, our pa- our two paths, you know, our main path is strategic acquisition. The second path is is IPO. And what I would change is, you know, maybe there's maybe there's you know this long term stock exchange is a potential third path and avenue for longer term oriented investors to, you know, with a different liquidity profile to um, to access some of these later stage companies, but not have the burden on these companies to go public at that point or do or in effect a total sale, it would give early stage investors like us some, some path to liquidity. And, you know, those, those avenues exist through the secondary markets. So maybe it's just, you know, continued development of what's going on in, in the secondary markets and a, and a way to access those in a way that's a little bit more transparent and um, available to, to private companies. That makes a lot of sense. What's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally? That's the easy one. I, you know, to me, um, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces is one of the books that probably impacted me personally uh, the most. Uh, it was probably one of the reasons why between my, my stint living in San Francisco and before moving to New York, I actually ended up traveling backpacking around the world for almost two years. And, you know, somewhat inspired by, by Joseph Campbell on that book, which was given to me by, by my father. So it had special meaning. Um, you know, professionally, I think I mentioned, you know, I read all David Swenson's books, 
um, when I was getting my early career start. And I'd say, you know, pioneering portfolio management, probably by David Swenson, who manages the endowment. You know, I probably wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't have gotten into hedge funds and I wouldn't have gotten into venture capital if I hadn't read read that book and studied what Yale's, Yale's endowment was doing and kind of alternative asset classes like PE, VC, and hedge funds. So definitely that book professionally has had the biggest impact on on my career path. So what's what's one company that you recently invested in or worked with that you're really excited about? So, well, we mentioned Museum of Ice Cream, so I won't say that one. You know, we just announced today that we participated in current Series B round. We had, we had also invested in current Series A. Current is a fintech company. Um, and it's a great example of the scope that, you know, we're looking at everything from fintech to healthcare. And so current is, you know, a neobank. Uh, they started with a banking product, which was designed for parents with teenage kids to get, to get them banked. Um, but then also they launched a personal debit pro- card product this year, which has taken off and grown extremely fast. The company is, surpassed half a million users um, in total. Um, you know, we think there's a, there's a huge opportunity to provide better banking services to um, that middle income, middle and lower income tier of people that, you know, shouldn't necessarily have to be paying late fees and, and getting, you know, charged gratuitously for overdrafts and having gas holds put on their cards when they want to fill up their tank, especially if you're an Uber or Lyft driver or, you know, people that just, you know, are living paycheck to paycheck current allows them to receive their paychecks two to three days early, um, which is a huge difference if, um, if you need to cash um, early and you, you know, you're living from one paycheck to another, or if you have lumpy income or if you're working in the gig economy. So current is a, is a banking product designed for this next generation of, you know, people working in this gig economy. A lot of the, a lot of the current users are, you know, food delivery people, or they work for, you know, retail chains, or they they drive for Uber and Lyft, or they do um, consulting businesses, and so they have a regular and lumpy income. And and it's something where I think it's just, it's a great product. It's a, it's an excellent team founded by Stuart, um, who is a former FX trader um, and was thinking about future of money. And we, we saw it and we were thinking about, wow, like this is really, you know, did, you know, for, for Elizabeth Street that focuses on digital commerce, you know, these next generation banks that enable digital consumerism essentially and digital banking are, you know, integral, uh, integral to that. And so, you know, a huge part of what we're doing thematically, but then also, you know, massive market um, and, you know, acquiring, you don't have the infrastructure that legacy banks have like physical bank branches. And if you're designing a bank from scratch today, using technology on the and building all the backend things in house, like you just, you have a lower cost. Um, you can be a lower cost provider of banking services. And so that can allow you to do some things that these traditional banks just cannot do structurally. They're not set up that way. So current's a super exciting platform to offer different banking products to consumers like in, in Gen Z and, and millennials that just interact with money now in a different, in a completely digital way. Right. So when, you know, when I was young, I had a passbook for a banking account and I had a lot of, you know, piggy bank with cash and you know, going forward, I don't think kids are going to be 
you know, saving in, in bills and coins. I mean, it's all digital. So, you know, the digital, what's going on in digital banking with current and, you know, some of the competitors is, is super exciting. So, so yeah, that was one that, um, the, the series B, which was led by Wellington, um, was announced today and Elizabeth street, you know, did a follow on, you know, with, with lead investor, you know, Expa and, and QED who are great, you know, great firms and QED is one of the most highly regarded fintechs out there. And so for us to, to co-invest in a group like that, I think is super exciting for, for Elizabeth street. I actually didn't realize that, that, that you're in the series B. I just, I just saw that you're in the series A. So that's, that's even more exciting. Congratulations. That's really, really great. Uh, so what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in didn't and wish you did. So I don't like to play Monday morning quarterback because, you know, it can go either way. But, you know, the one I always think about is Daily Harvest. And we met Daily Harvest at the seed stage. I mean, it was super early. Yeah, I was working at the family office and we just, I just, I just thought it was super interesting. But, you know, the family office I worked for, you know, was very focused on CPG distribution and, and the food distribution is a completely different um animal and so you know the thought process was look it's food and you know that's not really a focus of of ours and you know i just thought that would be a would would have been an interesting one to do because the the value proposition the product offering and shipping frozen foods um you know healthy smoothie you know in in frozen cups to people all around the country that didn't necessarily have access to you know places like juice press and uh and places like that made a lot of sense you know thematically like you know people want to eat healthier and you know being frozen means that it's super convenient people that don't live in small tiny apartments in new york like new york actually have you know big freezers and you know so frozen food can actually be a really healthy and easy um and accessible um way to to buy and consume food and so i thought daily harvest was was super interesting. And we saw that at the seed stage and didn't do it. And, you know, for everything I've heard, it's done phenomenally well. So um, not being able to go back in time and do that one, we just led uh, uh, the seed round for a frozen organic direct-to-consumer baby food company called Tiny Organics. So a lot of similarity. It's like, so my thought process there was, look, we miss, I miss daily harvest. Um, But, you know, when those consumers of daily harvest have kids, you know, they would be very, you know, natural customers for um, Tiny Organics, which is similarly frozen, fresh, organic, direct-to-consumer um, food for toddlers. Well, if it, if it, um, I know, I know it always, you know, it's never good to be Monday morning quarterback, but if, if it's helpful, I had uh, Susan Line on here from BBG Ventures, and she actually mentioned Daily Harvest. Well, Daily Harvest was the answer for this question as well. Yes, she did. And uh, and I had a. Oh, that's interesting. And and Susan's Susan's great. I love I love Susan. I think what she's doing is phenomenal. So. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, Will, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, it's been great, and you know, thanks for including me. And it was great speaking to you. And um, I really enjoyed you know my time talking to you. And there you have it. It was so great chatting with Will. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to keep up to date with Will, you can catch him on Twitter at data underscore zero one. It will also be located in the show notes and on the website. You're also welcome to check out theconsumervc.com for all episodes. And if you want to follow along behind the scenes, 
feel free to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. Happy holidays, everyone. This is a final episode of the year, and I'm going to be taking a two-week break, and we'll be returning to the mic January 6th. Lots more content to come in the new year, and I'm very excited to share more of these conversations with all of you. Once again, happy holidays, everybody, and be safe.